0: The following dialogue is intended to provide global perspectives on haemophilia and is provided for educational purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is intended only for residents of the United States and is not intended to replace discussions with your healthcare provider. All decisions regarding patient care must be made with a healthcare provider, considering the unique characteristics of the patient. The opinions expressed in this dialogue are the opinions of the individuals and not the opinions of Pfizer. The information and advice offered in this podcast is provided by participants based on their own personal experience and not in their capacity as a healthcare provider. No clinician has supervised, reviewed or endorsed the following as medical advice. Pfizer does not recommend or endorse any of the content as medical advice. The individuals featured in this podcast may have participated in or may currently be members of an advisory group for Pfizer Inc., This podcast is intended to be heard within the context of its original location online. Pfizer is not responsible for content if heard elsewhere. Hello and welcome to HemeCast, a podcast series designed to help to keep you up to date with advances in science, technology and clinical care in the rapidly evolving world of haemophilia. Coming up in this episode, we explore the complexities of haemophilia care in 2021 and beyond, and I speak to some of the world's leading experts in the field to gain their insights.
1: We also have the ambition, you know, to take full control of of that disease, haemophilia, by achieving zero bleeds in the largest number of patients.
2: I mean, one of the key concepts of a lot of... um, complex or acute medical interventions in hemophilia is to remove hemophilia from the equation. Yes. Yeah. So, so the simplest way is to actually effectively normalize their factor levels and so they can be treated as any other patient.
3: Rather than treating patients as a as a large single group of individuals with a with a say a disease type we know that within that group there are lots and lots of individual variations in how for example the disease might manifest and how someone might respond to treatment
0: we are living in a very exciting time in the evolution of the diagnosis and treatment of haemophilia As said in the 2020 WFH guidelines, in the past five years there has been unprecedented progress made in the development of new therapeutics for haemophilia as well as a huge shift in the principles and philosophy of haemophilia care. This evolution of haemophilia treatment has brought about the advancement of capabilities to tailor treatments for patients accounting for important factors such as lifestyle and potential comorbidities and most importantly individualizing care to the needs of each patient. In this episode of HemeCast, we'll take a look at the state of haemophilia care in 2020 and 2021, and we'll focus in on considerations for the management of haemophilia patients within the ICU. We'll finish by discussing how big data can be used to tailor haemophilia treatment and the possible impact this could have on precision medicine and haemophilia. So, to give us an overview of haemophilia care in the current era, I welcome back Professor Cedric Ermans, head of the Division of Haematology, the Hemostasis and Thrombosis Unit, as well as the Haemophilia Centre of the Saint-Luc University Hospital in Brussels, Belgium. So, I'm delighted now to be joined by Professor Cedric Ermans. And Cedric, we've spoken many times before on HemeCas, but... As we all know, 2020 has been an unprecedented year due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. But setting that aside, when you sort of look back over the past sort of 5, 10 years, what do you feel have been sort of the biggest changes in haemophilia care to date?
1: Well, thank you, Aya, and thank you for the opportunity to, to join you. Well, clearly... Uh, Things are changing uh, quickly. And I would say that, uh, you know, our practice has mainly been changed by, uh, you know, a a different spirit, you know. Now there is much more enthusiasm, optimism Mm. than before and also a lot of ambitions Um, Mm. that can now become reality. You know, we know that Mm. uh, prophylaxis is now the standard of care. We know that prophylaxis... Uh, is now accessible to more patients, and um, we also have the ambition, you know, to take a full control of of that disease, hemophilia, by achieving zero bleeds in the largest yeah. number of patients. So this this would reflect, I think, my my uh, current perception of the situation.
0: Yeah, and I suppose all those things, when they combine together, they've helped us to achieve in hemophilia the fact that people who live with haemophilia are living longer today than than they were, for example, 10, 20 years ago. And there's many reasons, as we know through the community, why that would be. But I suppose that brings up its own problems. And with that, you know, how can we best manage sort of the multiple comorbidities that are becoming associated with those people who live with haemophilia living that little bit longer?
1: Well, I think what is needed here is to try to Put together the multiple expertise that are required. You really need mm. a, an holistic approach to the patient, and um, and also again you need a lot of op- optimism and enthusiasm. Because what we have seen, even in my place, is that you could even revert some uh, situation. You could improve the joint status. You can uh, you could you know even initiate prophylaxis later in life. So this is achievable possible but you you really need a a team with uh, a lot of expertise and also you need a patient who is uh, highly motivated uh, with a high Mm -hmm. uh, trust in the team because for some of these patients you know the the last few decades have been very difficult because there were not that many options and because of that they've for some of them developed you know all the consequences of of hemophilia so it it takes time to convince these patients that it's it's worth investing a little bit more of time and energy mm-hmm. in their disease.
0: Yeah, and, and you sort of mentioned, you know, your team and the teamwork. And I think when we reflect sort of back on this highly unusual year, for for you and your team, how have you managed your practice over the past sort of nine months or so? How have you evolved it in such a way whereby you're still able to deliver that super high standard of individualized care that you've wanted for your patients
1: well it's clear that uh, you know with the many restrictions that we have had during the first wave but also recently with the second wave uh, clearly you know it was very mm. difficult for us to to run or uh, complex and multidisciplinary clinics we we have tried to do mm. that but uh It's clear that 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 was not possible. So some clinics have been delayed, some surgeries have been delayed. Mm. But I think that more or less we have been able, again, you know, with a a great team spirit and a good collaboration and understanding of of the patient to to manage this more or less officially. And also we could value, you know, new technologies and also do our best to keep in contact with them on a regular basis. So this is what we have tried to do.
0: Yeah. And, and I know specifically we've spoken before about telemedicine, but has your experience of telemedicine sort of changed over the past six months or so? Has your experience of virtual clinical practice also evolved or or how's it been for you and your team bringing virtual meetings to clinical care and clinical practice?
1: Well, you know, it, it was to some extent a necessity, especially at the peak of the pandemic to interact with our patients virtually, so that has been useful. We have tried to value this, although honestly I think the technology that we now have in place in my center should certainly be improved. But again, I think this is complementary to the face-to-face review clinic. I think it's nice to keep in touch with the patient, make sure that uh, things are fine, that everything is under control, but I don't think that it will fully replace, you know, uh, especially when when we have this kind of... uh, multidisciplinary clinic and you know you're seen by the physio by the nurse mm. different doctors together you know that really creates a unique atmosphere that cannot be duplicated virtually but honestly mm. i think it's complementary because sometimes you know especially with some patients we do not see them that frequently so to avoid mm. you know long periods of uh, not uh, interacting closely the Uh, telemedicine could be useful. My concern also is for older patients who might not have, you know, the expertise, uh, who do not have, you know, all the tools that are now required for telemedicine. So something has to be done to avoid that uh, these older people who clearly would benefit probably the most are not left aside, so I think yeah. that initiative will be welcome here, and this is an issue that I be that has been raised in many places, so i don 't know yeah. how that will be solved, but clearly uh, something has to be done
0: yeah, yeah,
1: so Cedric, now
0: my final question, and I suppose when we reflect back on two thousand and twenty and and what a tough year it's been, of course our, our thoughts also now stretch to the future and where do you think everyone's attention should be focused right now when we're thinking about the future and innovation and ultimately improvements that we hope will be round the corner for those patients who live with haemophilia?
1: Well, it's clear that there are many uh, innovations around. Uh, some of them will probably be more successful than others. This is clear. Uh, this is again very stimulating, but the question will be, you know, and this is uh, increasingly difficult to select, you know, the best treatment option for each patient. So I, I think this is really the 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 the, the next challenge uh, for the mm. next uh, few months, or certainly few years. So um, each of these new treatment options has strengths and weaknesses, certainties and uncertainties, and. You will have to navigate uh, uh, with this and, and make sure that uh, we, we we do this in in an optimal way uh, and provide the appropriate guidance to each of our patients. Because some of these treatment options might be very attractive, might seem very attractive, but, you know, do they really represent what we hope for the future of hemophilia? So we need to be to be cautious, uh, interpret all this with the great caution and... Uh, uh, clearly have a very open discussions with our patient but it's clear that for our patients we have much more opportunities than before
0: yeah and exciting times ahead Cedric. so look without further ado I just want to thank you for your time uh, as ever I know how busy you are uh, in in between your clinic and your research and uh, it's wonderful to have you join us again on HemeCast and uh, thank you very much wishing you a great day stay safe
1: Thank you, Ian. Thank you for the opportunity to join you again on this, on this platform. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: A great summary from Cedric there. It's wonderful to hear his positivity and enthusiasm for how far haemophilia treatment has progressed over the years and the innovations to come, as well as his useful advice on managing those patients who are living longer thanks to advances in haemophilia care. Looking back to the 1970s, when freeze-dried powdered concentrates containing Factor eight and nine became available, this revolutionised haemophilia care and enabled people with haemophilia to self-infuse at home, alleviating trips to the hospital for treatment. But as we know, visits to the hospital, and indeed the intensive care unit, are inevitable. Haemophilia must therefore be managed in the complex environment of a busy intensive care unit and often alongside other complex medical considerations. To understand more about the optimal management of haemophilia patients in this setting, I talked with Dr. Gerry Dolan, consultant haematologist at St. Thomas' Hospital London in the UK and Haemophilia Centre Director at St. Thomas' Comprehensive Care Centre in London. Jerry, thank you so much for joining me to discuss the management of haemophilia in the intensive care setting. So I know there have been numerous circumstances by which a a person who lives with haemophilia may unfortunately need to be admitted to the intensive care unit. So I wondered whether you'd be able to sort of walk me through what that process
2: looks like. Well, yes, I mean, it it is uh, an interesting aspect of care for patients particularly when we see um, the increasing age of our patients when I mean, the big success of hemophiliotherapy over recent decades particularly yes. with the development of recombinant concentrates is that our patients are living longer because they've got safe mm. effective treatment mm. um, so I, I mean I guess there's two ways in which patients by which patients find themselves in ITU one is perhaps we know from a a major elective surgery, which is going to require intensive support afterwards. Uh, And that gives us the opportunity to plan with the intensive care teams so that uh, we have a clear written plan that we negotiate with the medical staff, the nursing staff in intensive care, understand each other's responsibilities. And that usually goes pretty well. The second option, of course, is that patients may find themselves in ITU through um, you know, no warning, maybe a road traffic accident mm. or you know, maybe a major, major infection, even you know, currently with COVID. Um, and that, that scares patients a lot. Um, so I think from our point of view, uh, we need some sort of early warning system. So we do recruit the patients in that. We, we make sure that they and their families know that if they're coming anywhere near a hospital, that they should ring us and alert us to that situation, so there's no delay in communication. Um, and then we actually, you know, in big centres like our own, we do actually have a pretty good relationship with intensive care anyway, perhaps not through mm. haemophilia, but through other aspects of haematological support for sure. ill patients. And it's, I think that's a key concept, building relationships. And, you know, one reassuring thing is intensive care staff are generally quite open to collaboration and understanding the requirement for advice and support. So, so, you know, you touch on this very close
0: collaboration between ICU and the haemophilia care teams. And, you know, it's, it's particularly important, you know, at all times, but also particularly now, I suppose, during COVID times as well. But maybe putting COVID aside for now, you know, can you sort of tell me what have been the key aspects to sort of maintaining and managing this close relationship that you have between ICU and the haemophilia care
2: teams? Um, Well I mentioned planning but actually also very regular personal visits to intensive care so um, we make sure that the haemophilia consultant who's on duty will visit at least once a day but often more often that Mm. the haemophilia nurses are take the responsibility for liaising with the other nurses to make sure that the factor concentrate is administered mm. at the correct times uh, in the right way. Um, and one, one aspect which is often a little bit forgotten is that, of course, with severe patients, you know, communication between hemophilia centres and severe patients is generally pretty good. But for moderate and mild, it's not always, because these patients do not bleed very often, they don't present mm. very often, but they still require pretty intensive hemostatic support in that setting. Yeah. So again, you know, regular personal contact is important here. And then also, you know, it's sometimes very difficult to plan around all the interventions that may be required in intensive care. Maybe the patient may need uh, ventilation or tracheostomy or intubation Mm -hmm. or different lines. And how do you manage factor... um, replacement in that very changing environment. But sort of moving, as I say, on to sort of focusing
0: a little bit here and now and sort of in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, are there any additional considerations for haemophilia patients admitted
2: to the ICU? Well, actually, you know, many of our patients are already concerned about COVID-19. And Mm. one of the commonest questions is, am I more at risk of developing severe COVID-19 experience um and the short answer and consensus among the physicians is no not not as a direct result of haemophilia but Mm. clearly in the intensive care setting you know the management may be more complex unless we are closely involved Mm. I mean one of the key concepts of a lot of um Complex or acute medical interventions in hemophilia is to remove hemophilia from the equation. So, so the simplest way is to actually effectively normalize their factor levels. And so they can be treated as any other patient. Takes a lot of anxiety, make sure they get the appropriate treatment and there's no delay in getting appropriate treatment. Mm. Um, But of course, you know there are some myths and legends amongst you know in, in medicine in many different circumstances yeah. and one of them is that hemophilia patients don't get thrombosis or can't get thrombosis mm. which of course is not true mm-hmm. and then particularly in the setting where you are replacing the deficient factor then why could they or why should they not get thrombosis if there is mm. a big enough challenge well
0: thank you jerry for your time and uh we wish you well. Very informative to hear from Jerry there about the additional considerations for the management of haemophilia patients within the ICU. Collaboration with the ICU team and regular visits by the consultant or nurse seem to be the key elements in the effective management of patients, whether that is a planned hospital visit for surgery or a trip without warning. This is essential, particularly in the current healthcare environment. So, I want to change tack slightly now to look at what is termed big data. In this era of genomic medicine, I wanted to learn about what big data is and how this can be used to inform precision medicine and haemophilia. And I was delighted to have the opportunity to talk with expert Dr. Keith Gomez from the Royal Free Haemophilia Centre and Thrombosis Unit, part of the UCL Medical School in London, UK. Keith, thank you so much for joining us.
3: It's my pleasure, Ian.
0: Um, Now, I want to really focus on big data, because I know that at a recent scientific meeting, you presented really expertly on this topic. And and for our listeners, I I wondered if you could briefly define what is big data and and what are its opportunities and, and the opportunities it presents to overall medical care?
3: So I think I think big data is a phrase that's come into our use in perhaps the last 5 years or so and and really what we're talking about is the accumulation of vast amounts of genomic and phenotypic data on thousands of individuals in databases and and I think it's important to recognize that by databases we mean national and international collaborative databases the The reason why this is a a, a bit different to what we've had before is because previously we've been used to collecting, say, genetic information on maybe a few hundred individuals within an institute or maybe in a a national body. But the problem with genetic data is that that gives us relatively little insight uh, into how those genetic changes impact upon disease, because most genetic changes that are important are relatively rare. And so you need to see tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of individuals, a mixture of normal individuals and those who've got the disease that you're interested in before you can start to work out what those variants are doing uh, and in terms of causing disease. I think the second part of your question was,
0: okay.
3: how do we then use that or, or what benefits does that give us? Well, yeah. I think in medicine, the key point is that term precision medicine. And... Absolutely what we're thinking about there is really rather than treating patients as a as a large single group of individuals with a with a say a disease type we know that within that group there are lots and lots of individual variations in how for example the disease might manifest and how someone might respond to treatment and what precision medicine is about is recognizing those differences and then tailoring treatment accordingly and obviously it's by having a really good understanding of the genetic causes of that disease and how that interacts with the clinical manifestations that we are then able to tailor the treatment accordingly so i think big data is really a key requirement to enable precision medicine for our patients
0: okay no that that's really helpful and and thank you keith for for being you know so clear with your description there i think you know, when I think about precision medicine and, and big data, I, I can definitely see how it could be used to identify sort of cross-disease components of genetic risk. Can can you explain this sort of more in the context though of hemophilia?
3: So if, if we think about hemophilia, then I think we've been used to thinking about it as a monogenic disorder. It is a monogenic disorder. Mm. Mostly the the key thing is what the variant is in the factor eight or the factor nine gene. And that's certainly true for severe haemophilia. And you can more or less define the entire phenotype by knowing what the factor VIII level is, for example, and the factor eight variant. Yes. But if you then think about other types of haemophilia, um, the more mild and moderate types, then we recognise straight away that actually the factor VIII variant is, a, is a, still a key part of it. But it also depends yes. very much upon other patient characteristics, uh, how much they... Um, for example, do sports or, or other external okay. activities where they might have trauma. We realize now that that starts to play a big role in how much they bleed and we also recognize that there are other genetic components that that also influence risk so for example, if we take factor eight, we know that the level of factor eight in our in our bodies is uh, very largely dependent also on one Willebrand factor, and mm. so we now know then that genetic variation in the von Willebrand factor gene can influence our factor VIII levels. So we know that for mild haemophilia, understanding the influence of other genetic factors is is very important for understanding the phenotype. So mild and moderate haemophilia, we can see that that's important. Severe haemophilia, I think the thing we have to remember, of course, that our treatment strategies are now very, very much geared towards converting the phenotype in a patient with severe disease to mild disease. So although they start off with severe disease, in reality, for yeah. a large part of their time when they're with us, they actually have a milder phenotype. And so yeah. effectively then, they fall into the category I've just described, where it's understanding all those other components that becomes important. So you can see then that it's not just the mild and moderates, it's really all of our patients. If we, if we treat them in the way that we intend to, that we need to understand uh, all of these different components that uh, influence the bleeding phenotype.
0: Yeah, again really helpful. I think, you know, you very much underline the 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 potential really for big data. But I suppose like always there is, there is that balance. And, and and what challenges do you see are associated with big data analysis? And you know, is there a risk of misinterpretation?
3: Well, there is there is that. And and I think that's one of the key uh, things that we've been We've had to put in process steps to make sure that that doesn't happen. But I think, I think before we, we think about interpretation, I think the first challenge really is simply about accumulating the data. And as, as someone who's been involved in some of the genomics projects that we've been having over the last five or, or perhaps longer years, maybe 10 years now, we can see that once we started collecting genomic data one of the first things we realised was that we were asking for an awful lot of data capture. And of course, that takes time and effort. Yes. And that's not necessarily something that's easy for a clinician uh, or any healthcare professional to do in, while they're seeing a patient in clinic and they've got several other things to think about. So accumulating the data is, I think, the first challenge: How do we actually okay. get all this deep phenotypic data, and how do we how do we do that in a timely way? And the simple answer to that: Well, I, th- I don't think there is a, a single answer to that. But I think one thing that has worked well is if we have dedicated teams who effectively approach the patient once they've been referred from, say, within yeah. a, a clinic, and then capture the data in a in, in a, in a pro forma manner that basically allows it to be entered correctly into the database. Uh, And that's the process that's been adopted in the UK, and I think it's the process that's been adopted in some of the other big projects uh, around the world. Um, So essentially, uh, the the clinician simply has to identify the patient, uh, and then the patient agrees, Mm -hmm. and then they're, they're essentially notified to the data collection team, who then collect the data we need so I think that's the first that's the first challenge and then at the other end obviously the data then gets um analyzed and then you're quite right the idea is that the other end you then get a a report or some kind of feedback coming back Mm. to the clinician and then you're absolutely correct that interpretation becomes the key part of that now again whereas it's, it's it's to do really with the complexity of the data of course once you once you've Uh, introduced a a much larger data set, then complexity comes with that. And so what we need is to have very advanced and effective bioinformatics that lies behind the databases, or indeed uh, alongside the databases, to interpret that data and filter out, if you like, the important bits of it and the less important bits of it, scoring, if you like. And so we've had now schemes of classification to classify variants, classify their effect on phenotype. And we need we we've adjusted the ways in which we report that data back to the clinician so that it's essentially it becomes styled in the same way, for example, that we classify haemophilia into mild, moderate, and severe. Yes, we now classify variants into likely pathogenic, pathogenic variants of uncertain significance, and benign. And really, it's the, the ones that are not benign that we're interested in. But clinicians do need to then be aware of that classification and and what the indifferent categories mean. And there is undoubtedly a need for some education about that to help people understand that and how they would use that in their their clinical practice.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, uh, Keith. You know, again, a wonderful summary about how clinicians can best contribute to big data, but also what some of the challenges are. My my final question, really, I I, want to ask you to look into your crystal ball, really, and and sort of predict in 10 years' time, you know, how much do you think the utilisation of big data will have really impacted precision medicine and haemophilia?
3: Well, I I think one of the things we can say about haemophilia, if we take stock at the moment, we can look at our treatment options that we have now in 2020 And they're very, very different to what they were even five years ago and certainly 10 years ago. Because if we go back to when many of us started working in this area, treatment essentially Mm. consisted of factor concentrate. And there were a few different types of factor concentrate, but pretty much that was it. We now have different half-lives of factor concentrate. We have treatments which are not factor concentrate at all, but still provide a phenotypic effect. And all of that new treatment, all of those new treatment options, that were only really possible because we had a thorough understanding or we developed a thorough understanding of the molecular basis of of haemophilia. That's great for haemophilia A and B. Well, A A more than B, I think. I think B perhaps still a little bit behind there. Um, And then if we look at haemophilia itself, then while we do have, you know, while these treatment options are, are a, a big advance on what we had. We're we're still not. They're not perfect. They still have. There are still issues to do with side effects, for example. And some patients still, for example, develop inhibitors or get thrombosis with some treatments. And understanding exactly where the sweet spot, if you like, uh, is mm. is where precision medicine will come in. And I think with precision medicine, if we get that right in in, in ten years' time or five years' time, then really. Our aim should be to normalise um, the, the phenotype. And I hope that's where, that's where we'll get to.
0: Well, thank you so much, Keith, for, for, for sharing that. And also, uh, you know, for really shining a light on what we may have in the future. And it's exciting times ahead. So without further ado, you know, Keith... It's been great having you with us. Thank you for your time and your your energy and your your honest answers. And uh, we look forward to speaking
3: soon. Thank you very much, Ian. It's it's my pleasure to talk. Thank you.
0: Fascinating insights from Keith on the exciting advancements of precision medicine and haemophilia care. Keith described a future in which big data generated from databases of genomic and phenotypic data can be used to tailor treatment to the patient for optimal outcomes, which is a very exciting prospect indeed. And with that, all that remains is to say we hope you've enjoyed this edition of HemeCast. My thanks to Jerry Dolan, Keith Gomez and Cedric Eman's for their time and expertise. And until next time, goodbye. This podcast is powered by Pfizer.